Hey folks, welcome to an online worship service. Due to some scheduling with our team, it's actually Tuesday. We're recording this early to uh, share with you this weekend. So Easter Sunday was just two days ago. And I, I belong to several Facebook uh, worship leaders forums. And I saw a, a, a worship leader on there say something like, hey, if no one's using that empty tomb, I could go for a nap, right? <laughs> um, I couldn't help but wonder if the disciples didn't just crash what did they do on the Monday? What did they do on the Tuesday following Easter? I'll bet they were emotionally exhausted. And I'll bet knowing that Jesus was alive and walking among them, they slept like I slept. Um, but I'll bet I have this vision of them rising in the morning on a Tuesday or Wednesday after the resurrection, knowing that their Lord was out there and rising with joy after their exhaustion had faded and they had recovered. And so I just want to invite you, uh, we're going to be in a communion time tonight, uh, so please prepare some bread and cup for yourself. We're in this season where, where Jesus was with the disciples before he had ascended. Um, and I just have this vision of us as a church trying to stay close to Jesus, like they must have tried to stay close to him physically in his proximity. Um, so that's going to be kind of our theme for tonight and our theme for communion. Let's praise the Lord in song, shall we? darkness now has ended in the kingdom of light in the kingdom of light forever under your dominion you're the king of my life you're the king of my life you reign above it all you reign
some communions, I try and give a little mini theology lesson. And this, this month, I just don't want to do that. I just want to celebrate the goodness of God and linger in the presence of Jesus this week after Easter, his resurrection day. So just take a minute. I know you're probably looking at your phone or watching it on TV or whatever, but just take a second and remember the goodness of God in your life this last week over the past few days, this last crazy year that we've been through. Take a moment, remember the goodness of God. And as you do, eat the bread. Remember the broken, the resurrected body of Jesus. Let's remember him. His blood was spilled. His blood was sufficient. The veil has been torn in two. The rocks shook. We sat, we waited, and the blood of Jesus raised from the ground triumphant. He lives in glory where he sits and literally advocates on our behalf in the spiritual realms and the heavenly places. Glory to the name of Jesus. Let's remember and drink this communion Sunday. Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, whenever you are watching this. Welcome to church. We are so excited that you are with us. My name is Chris, and I have a few announcements to give you. Uh, First one, uh, we as a staff, we love praying for you. Like, we really love praying for you. If you have a prayer request, you can text 97,000, and we will get your prayer requests. Uh, Stephanie will get your prayer requests and you can even send your prayer request now. So if you have a prayer request and you're like, oh, I'm done listening to Chris, send your prayer request to 97,000. Stephanie will get it. That would be awesome. Uh, our Canal Valley meal program is this Monday, April 12th. And if you are interested in signing up for that uh, to help volunteer for that, you can go on our website and you can see what needs still need to be met and you can sign up there. That would be awesome. Uh, if you are a guy, raise your hand. I'm a guy, you're a guy, some of you are guys. We have our men's game night on Friday, April 23rd. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be in the well. And this is an old school game night. So like we're talking about like board games, probably risk, checkers, things like that. Some of the new board games. So leave the controllers, leave the headsets at home. Don't be that guy, okay? Friday, April 23rd, men's game night. Hopefully we'll see you there. If you're new here at ABF, we would love to have lunch with you. Our newcomer's lunch is on Sunday, April 25th in the well after second service. And this is just a great way to, uh, for you to meet us, the staff and who we are and what we are as a church are all about. Uh, just a wonderful time. We would love to have lunch with you, lunch on us. And if you are interested in going, you can email Stephanie so we can add you to the list. That would be awesome. Uh, our ladies tea is coming up on Saturday, May 1st. 
And uh, it's at 11 a.m. in our beautiful courtyard, and it's just going to be a wonderful time with a wonderful lunch with uh, a wonderful speaker, and it's just going to be an amazing time. The ladies of the church, and maybe a lady that's in your circle that you can invite here to ABF, that would be awesome. And you can sign up for that as well on our website. And lastly, uh, we're, again, we're just so thankful for your ongoing generosity every single week. Uh, We're just so thankful for that. And uh, again, you can uh, continue to give online. You can give in person in the office, or you can mail in a check, whatever uh, fits best for you. We are so appreciative of that. And finally, the man, the myth, the legend, it is time for Pastor John. Well, welcome, ABF Online. Thank you, worship team. That was so awesome. You know, today is a momentous day. This is 34 messages in the Gospel of John. We've spent eight months, and today we're doing the final message. Let's hear it. Woo! And when we're done, we're going to say, that's a wrap. And so if you'll look at your Bibles with me, turn to John 21. This is the final installment. It is an epic story. And we have one final episode with five scenes. And so we'll finish today and we will complete the book. Let's jump right in. Look at your notes here. Let's look at scene one. I'm gonna call it a big fish story. Let's look at it uh, in verses one to three to start. And Peter says, I'm going fishing. Who wants to come with me? Check it out. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, which is the Sea of Galilee, same name. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and the two others of his disciples were together. Because verse 3, Simon Peter says to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we're going to go with you. And they went out and got into the boat. But that night... Sadly, they caught nothing. Zippo, nada. Now, if you're keeping track, this is the third time that Jesus has appeared to his disciples in these last two chapters in John. He's making a number of post-resurrection appearances. We know who, who the five guys were, but probably the other unnamed disciples are probably Andrew, Peter's brother, and Philip, who always is hanging out with Nathaniel. Now, here's a big question. Are, there being, are they being disobedient? Because remember, Jesus says, go wait for me in Galilee. Now, technically, well, they are in Galilee. They're fishing. And so some people think, no, 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 they are impatient. They're trying to think, take things into their own hands. They think Jesus is going to be a no-show. Uh, and that's how some people view this. I don't view it this way. I think they're being active in their waiting. Remember, Peter, his former profession is a Fisherman, he's a professional. He's, he made his livelihood by this. And while they're waiting, somebody's got to feed the families, right? So while they're waiting, they're going fishing. Plus, it's a great distraction, man. All this has gone on. Their heads are spinning. Remember, we left them kind of running for their lives, Peter denying Jesus. And now he's making their third appearance we're going to see here in just a moment. Now, they're fishing at night. That's the optimal time. Not so much because you can catch more fish during that time, but because when you fish all night, then those fresh fish are brought to the market uh, early in the morning, and it's better for resale. So the bottom line is, despite their experience, they finish all night of fishing, and they get zilch. So what happens? Well, who is this guy? In verse 4, 
Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. How do they not recognize him? This is his third appearance to different groups of disciples. How do they not recognize him? Well, last week, Pastor Scott suggested maybe it was because he was in his glorified body and they don't recognize him. I think there might be some other reasons too. Uh, One is they're not the only ones who didn't recognize him. Remember, Mary Magdalene doesn't uh, recognize him in the garden tomb. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus don't recognize him. But we have a little clue why they didn't recognize him. From Luke 24, 16, it says, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. In other words, supernaturally, they were kept from seeming. So maybe Jesus is doing that again. Some are saying they're fishing at night. Hello, it's what? Dark. So you can't see that far. We know it's 100 yards from the text. Or maybe it's just reversed. The sun is just rising over the Golan Heights there to the east, and they're looking in that blinding sun, kind of like me on the first tee at Westlake when the sun is rising in my golf game, which we are not going to digress to right now. Or Maybe it's because his physical appearance is so marred, right? I mean, we know there's scars in his hand and his wrists and his feet. And it says in Isaiah 52, 14, so marred was his form that his appearance was not that of the son of man. Well, something happens that's very familiar in verse five and six. Jesus said to them, children, yo, fellas, hey, buddies, do you have any fish? They answered him, nope. Verse six, he said, well, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you're gonna find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul in the, fi- the catch because there's the quantity of the fish. Now, you gotta look at this word children. He calls the disciples, uses the word padilla, which is this term of endearment for children. Um, uh, it was also used to kind of older fishermen in relationship to kind of young fishermen. And it, he's having fun with them. I, I, I think he did it with an Irish accent. Yeah, can we do one? No, we're not going to do one. You'll have to come on Sunday to hear the Irish accent. All right. But the bottom line is, why does Jesus ask questions that he already knows the answers to? He knows they hadn't caught any fish. God is always doing that to characters in the Bible. Remember Adam in the garden? Hey, Adam, where are you? Uh, he knows exactly where he is. Uh, hey, did you eat any of the fruit? Uh, uh, yeah, he, they, he knew that. How about Elijah? Hey, what are you doing here? He, she, he's booking from Jezebel. And so what happens when God asks questions that he already knows the answers to, to Bible characters, and when he does that with us, is it because he's exposing the fact that we need him. He's got this. And even when we think we are out of control, God's always there and he knows the answer already. Now, isn't it funny? He goes, put it on the right side of the boat. Okay, we've been fishing for nine plus hours and apparently the right side is so much better than the left side. That's seven and a half feet. If I've been on one of those boats, it's not that far. And yet they do it. Does this sound familiar? Remember, three years ago, in Luke chapter 5, early in his ministry, they're fishing, and there's a similar experience. And the irony of it all, because that's when Jesus found them fishing and says, do the same thing, and that's when he recruits them. And now, three and a half years later, after it's all said and done, after the resurrection, he's recommissioning them by using the same fishing experience. I want to suggest that fishing in this context has some interesting application for us as believers. 
I think fishing is always symbolic of what captures our attention. Or maybe, what is it that distracts us from our ultimate mission? Is their ultimate mission to be fishermen? No. Is it supposed to be fishers of men? Yes. And then Peter's going to get a second commissioning here in just a little bit. Now, here's something also that's interesting. This is the final miracle in the gospel. You said, where's the miracle? It's the catching of the fish, right? And the size of the catch. In fact, it's numbered, we're going to find out. And so we know that the first miracle was the turning of water to wine in Cana. That was in Galilee. And the last miracle is here in Galilee. In Cana, there's no wine. In this one, there's no fish. In Cana, he says, fill the water pots. Here he says, cast the net. In Cana, the water pots were filled to the brim. And here the nets are full to the brim of fish, right? And so Peter just jumps in literally. Look what happens in verses seven and eight. That disciple whom Jesus loved, we know that's John from last week, says to Peter, hey, 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 it's Jesus. It's the Lord. Now, what does Simon Peter go? Oh, really, dude? Yeah, uh-huh, whatever. No, what is Simon Peter? He is the, P- the Peter that we love because he is so like spontaneous. What does he do? He hears that it's the Lord. He puts on his outer garment because this is a dream because it says, for he was stripped for work. Now, let's don't go wild here. He's not running around naked. He's just down in his shorts, you know, because it's hot, heavy work. And he threw himself into the sea. Not before it says he put on his outer garment. Let's get this right. Let's put on my heavy boots, put on my heavy coat, and let's jump in the water. And now he has to swim 100 yards with all this extra weight. He is excited to see Jesus. Leaves the other disciples, it says in verse 8, and they came in the boat dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land. I think 100 yards is so far from land if you're swimming with that heavy coat on and your work boots. So again, John recognizes Jesus first. He's the first to the tomb, which we were reminded last week that uh, kind of puts it in, in, in Peter's face. But Peter is the first to jump out of this boat, and he was the first and only disciple to jump out of the boat during the storm to see Jesus when he's walking on the water. So the issue is, why did he put on the crazy coat? Well, I think it's because he doesn't want to have disrespect. You can't meet the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Messiah Rabbi in your skivvies. That just ain't going to play, right? It's just not going to work. And so he's trying to dress respectfully. And so finally, the rest of the disciples join them. All that is scene number one. Scene number two breakfast on the beach. Let's change the camera angle. You can imagine the scene. Let's check it out in verses 9 to 14. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, hey, bring me some of that fish that you caught. So Simon Peter went aboard, hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them to be specific. And although there were so many, the net wasn't torn that significant. And he said to them, come and have breakfast. But now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because now they know it is the Lord. So Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. Now this was the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he raised, was raised from the dead. Now, think about if you're the director of this epic film, this last episode. So many memories, right? The charcoal fire reminds Peter of the charcoal fire that he's warming his hands by while he's denying Christ back in John 18. It was cold that night. It was cold that morning. Then think about the fish that they caught. Uh, 
Jesus didn't need their fish. It says he already had fish on the grill, right? And so he didn't really need their fish, but it does remind me of this principle. God doesn't need our help, but he sure loves our contributions. Our God is big enough. He doesn't need our help, but he uses us oftentimes in spite of ourselves, in spite of our doubts, in spite of our failures, in spite of our disappointing choices. Like that little boy with the five loaves and two fishes. Jesus didn't really need that, but he used that, and that was the investment. Then, of course, the fish and the bread. You know, for those of you who eat healthy, this is like lean protein, whole grain foods right there. Jesus was way ahead of his time. And it's a reminder of what? The feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000. What a powerful reminder. And it's going to be a reminder. They're sitting there having breakfast. It's one of those breakfasts as the sun's coming up and it's getting warmer and they're lingering around the fire and they're talking. You can imagine the stories they're telling. Remember that time when? Oh, yeah. And then what about Thomas? <laughs> yeah, Thomas. And Thomas isn't laughing. Uh, but the bottom line is they're sharing a meal. Have you ever had one of those great meals? I had one in February last year before COVID. We sat with some friends at Dana Point overlooking the harbor and we must have been there for hours because they were like turning off the lamps outside and you're like locking the door. Hey, turn off the lights when you leave, that kind of thing. But when you have that great meal and you're sharing it with friends, it seems like time stands still. And I think that's the moment they're going to remember in this scene. And of course, the Sea of Galilee, all the things that happened up there, that was their favorite place to go. Get out of the hustle and bustle of Jerusalem and let's get to the Galilee. What's the application for us? Jesus always shows up on the beach of your life. I think the beach of your life is that place when you're stalled, you're stuck, you may be broken, you're wondering, and yet you meet Jesus, and in spite of all your failures, he says, let's have a meal together. Let's put that stuff behind. Can you imagine how the disciples feel? They had ditched him. They had run for their lives. They were fearing for their lives. They were hiding out in a room when he met with them the first time. And slowly they're coming back to life, literally in the sense that Jesus is going to be able to do something with them once again. And in your lowest, fearful, failing, flailing moment, Jesus meets you at that beachfront and says, let's have breakfast. Let's have that cup of coffee. So it says in verse 11, uh, Peter did help with the hall. Why do they count the fish? This is interesting. Luke is the one who's supposed to be all detailed. John is, doesn't give us this detail usually. But I think it's because there are seven guys and there's a, we're going to split the prophet seven ways and this is what the fish is going to go for. They're not going to you know, leave the catch out there. This is part of their financial future. And yet, I believe in this scene, it isn't the number of fish they caught or how big the fish they caught. What they'll remember forever until the day they die was that final breakfast with Jesus, where their regrets are put aside, where they can once and for all realize that it's going to be okay. Well, scene three, Jesus restores Peter. This is an intimate scene in verses 15 to 17. I'm not going to read all the verses to you here. You can read it, but you know three times it says, Jesus, 
Do you love me? Do you agapao me? That agapao love is that kind of love that is unconditional, God kind of love. And Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. He says, then feed my sheep. He does that routine three times. And I want to kind of refer to that in just a moment. But the bottom line is, why is he restoring Peter? We know that he probably had met with Peter privately because of 1 Corinthians 15.5, and there was a chance for a private reconciliation. But now he's going to restore Peter in front of the boys, right? How does he go from denying Christ to being the leader of the Jerusalem church and preach like the daylights out of that sermon in Acts 2? Because he is restored. He is a focused man. But more important, he's a forgiven man. Now, that's why John doesn't end the gospel in last week in John 20. That's the perfect conclusion. But if he ends that way, he doesn't kind of close all the details and, and answer all the plot twists that have been opened for us. You see, in this final scene in Peter's story, is he shows to Peter that he is a great savior. He promised he'd come back and he delivered. But you know what we don't realize? Who wrote this book? John. John is a great friend. He's such a good friend. He wants the world to know that my friend Peter, though he did some pretty stupid stuff, right? He was forgiven. He wants the world to know that he was restored. He wasn't left a failure on the junk heap of regret because John 21 is the whole link to Acts 1 through 12, because that's all about Peter. And that's how we know that this restoration was complete, because man, from this day forward, Peter just brings it. And so we see the three questions, three responses, three commissions. Now, the failure we always point to is that he denied Christ. But I want to suggest to you that they all failed Christ. If you go back to Luke 22, what did they all do? They fell asleep in Gethsemane, right? In verse 45, during the prayer time. By the way, I've never fell asleep during prayer time during a staff meeting. <laughs> Take it up with Pastor Scott later. Uh, number two, he, they overreact and cut off Malchus's ear. He, Peter does in verse 50. They follow, he follows at a distance in verse 54. He denies him three times in 53 through 56. And yet, remarkably, Jesus doesn't seem as a failure, doesn't seem as, a, as, a, as just a total waste of his time. Like, I invested three years to get this? Uh-uh. Now, Peter was flawed. He was foolish. He was fearful. But Jesus sees him as forgiven, as a Christ follower, and as a future that he had in front of him. And so he asked that question three times, do you love me more than these what are the these? He could be pointing to the fish. Do you love me more than fishing, your profession, making a buck? Do you love me more than that? Or maybe he's pointing to these the other fellas. Do you love me more than these guys? Because you have made pretty bold claims about you're not going to, you know, remember all the claims he made? And so maybe he's saying, do you love me more than these guys who say they're also devoted to me? You know what I see in this is we have one of those more than these experiences in our lives, right? What is our more than these experience with Jesus? 
what gets in my way from being completely sold out? Do I really love him or do I love, and you can fill in the blank. That's tough in this world because there's so many distractions, right? We use the word love for so many things. I love fantasy football. I love that Baylor beat Gonzaga. I love that I had uh, an enchilada or a burrito from, you know, Los Agaves. I love my wife and on and on. And yet we have these experiences. And so this fishing represents those things that maybe kind of deter us or distract us or keep us from reaching that, that place with God we should be. Well, he responds three times that I love you, but he doesn't use the word agape. He uses this other word for love, which is called phileo or brotherly love, affection, admire. He says, sure, I love you. I admire you. I respect you. You're my bro. You're my bud. Not the supreme devotion that Jesus was asking for. And he did make pretty wild assertions, didn't he? He doesn't want to overpromise and underdeliver one more time. But Jesus three times gives him the same commission, feed my sheep. In other words, he goes from being a fisher of men to being a shepherd of the flock. In other words, you're going to be a pastor. You're going to shepherd the church of God. He becomes a leader in the church of Jerusalem. We know that. And I think Jesus puts it in a different framework. He says, I know you'll love me when you care about the things that I care about. And who does Jesus care about more than anything? Us, his sheep the bride of Christ, the church. And so Jesus has always been about loving people, loving us in spite of, not because of, not because we're so great. We are so flawed, but yet so forgiven. And so I want to give you a response to today before we, we wrap up in just a couple more scenes. But let's just take a pause here. Two responses for us. Hey, friends, everyone fails, but you don't have to be a failure. Let your setback become your comeback. Never give up. And if this were Sunday, I would give you this great other illustration that you're going to have to wait for Sunday to hear again. That's not fair. But the bottom line is all of us fail. And number two, God's grace is bigger than your past. God's grace is bigger than your past. By the way, friends, we all have a past, a past that some of us are ashamed of, that are weighed down by, that there's anchors that keep us from breaking free from our past. And yet God says this in Psalm 37, 23 to 24. Look at it there. The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way when he falls, he will not be hurled down because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. Well, we won't take a whole lot of time to unpack scene number four, but he gets a glimpse into the future. And there's a revelation in verses 18 and 19. You can read it out, but essentially says, stretch out your hands, Peter, because that's the way you're going to die. It was a prediction of his martyrdom. In fact, church tradition through Eusebius records that Peter suffered a martyr's death under Nero in 67 or 68 AD, probably being crucified upside down because he said, I wasn't worthy to be crucified the way my Lord was. And as we mentioned last week, Peter's probably been dead for 20 years by the time John's writing about it. And there's a rebuke because even though he knows he's going to die, um, 
he now wants to know, well, what's going to happen to everybody else, right? He's wringing his hands. Well, what about John? And you can see that in verses 20 to 22. What about John? And, and essentially, Jesus kind of has to rebuke him and say, hey, 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 I'll take care of John. You take care of you, right? I'll, in fact, I'll take care of you too, right? And so uh, Peter kind of, he's just so human, so like us. Like, oh, what about everybody else? Or how are they going to die? And what, when is it going to happen, you know? And what are the odds that, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But that started this little rumor in verse 23. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers and sisters that the disciple was not going to die, talking about John. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he wasn't going to die, but if it is my will that he did remain until I come, well, what's it to you? It was just an extension of this kind of clarification for Peter that, no, just you take care of you. But it is interesting, both Matthew's gospel and John's gospel end by clarifying and setting straight a rumor. In Matthew, the rumor that's being set straight at the end in Matthew 28 and 27 was that the disciples had sold the party. No, it didn't happen. And then John sets to rest the rumor that Christ had promised that he'd return during John's lifetime. Not what was going to happen. He's just saying, John wouldn't someday, he would someday die, but it doesn't mean that it's Peter's business to find out when and where. And then we come to the epilogue. There is so much more that could be said, it says in verse 24 and 25. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are so many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Now, there's some discussion about where John died. Was it an island of Patmos? I don't think so. I think he died in Ephesus. Clement of Alexandria says that John wrote the gospel of his, at the urging of his friends. By then, he's an elder at Ephesus, and it's, the, uh, it, it's kind of his little contribution to the cause here, right? And we know that this gospel of John only records 20 days out of the entire three and a half years of Christ's life. In fact, 90% of John's material is not found in the other three gospels, which we call the synoptic gospels. And so no wonder he writes, there's so much more I could have written. I wrote about 20 days. And so this is the gospel, the gospel of John, where the word Jesus is mentioned over 170 times, and the word belief is mentioned over 100 times. So this is the gospel about believing in Jesus. And so I have some simple questions for you as we wrap up this chapter. What's the story of your life that's yet to be written? That's really the, the real story here. For you personally, as you look at Jesus' story, of John's story, is your story the fact that you've recognized Jesus and now you're obeying him? Is your story the one of belief? Or maybe your story is overcoming failure and, and finding forgiveness, just like Peter did. Is that your story? Or maybe it's the story of how God's going to use your life in the future and how he's going to use you to spread the gospel. But whatever it is, would you promise me, friends, that you will not let your past derail you, discourage you, or try to define you? Because God is the God of second chances. And these five final little scenes, we see that message of grace and forgiveness throughout all of this final chapter. 
And that's why, friends, we say today that as we finish the Gospel of John, chapter 21, that's a wrap. That's a wrap.
Well, online friends, it's been quite a journey, hasn't it? And as you write your story, as God continues to write your story, let's remember that God is the God of second chances. Amen? He loves you, he's forgiven you, and he's gonna use you. We'll see you again next week.